Have you followed the college admissions scandal? For years, wealthy Americans have been bribing coaches and university officials to ensure that their children be admitted to the elite colleges. It was a scheme that augmented the many built-in advantages that affluent kids have anyway, whose parents can afford intensive tutoring, college consultants, and extracurricular activities that look good on a high school senior's resume. And this does not even take into account legacy kids or students whose families give supersized donations. With these legal advantages, one wonders why there was even a need to bribe anyone at all. And what's the difference between one great college and another anyway? Does it really matter to a privileged youngster whether her degree is from one Ivy League university or the next, or from one of the dozens of the great universities all across the country? Studies suggest that it doesn't actually matter all that much, except for lower and middle class and poor kids whose lives can be catapulted from the bottom of the socioeconomic classes to the very top of American society with an elite university degree. Let me focus on three points that are especially interesting to me. One, the temptation to cheat. The first thing to notice is that no middle-class family was caught up in the admission scandal, except on the receiving end of the bribes. There are no firemen who tried to bribe college officials, no store clerks, no bus or taxi drivers, no bodega owners, no nurses, no secretaries, no janitors, no cooks, no homeless people offered money to college administrators or coaches. The cheaters are more like many of us. Prominent attorneys, doctors, CEOs, and senior executives of big and profitable companies, fashion designers, entrepreneurs, business and finance executives, published authors, media personalities, Hollywood figures. These are successful and affluent families that seem to have everything already. The wealthy and the educated are not inherently more corrupt than others, but they are no less corrupt by virtue of their status or education. And they possess the means that others do not have to do wrong. If you don't make enough to bribe someone, you're not likely to be tempted to bribe someone. The more we have, the greater is the temptation to use what we have, whatever it takes, to achieve our ambitions. If we cannot achieve what we want within the rules, we may be tempted to stretch the rules 
the impulse to cheat is always present in our lives, especially in a society like ours that so rewards achievement. Cheating is part of our makeup as human beings. It's been that way since the beginning. The rabbis tell us that we were created with a yetzer hatov and the yetzer hara, both the good and the troubling, troubling, troublesome impulse. From the first warning to avoid the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the human impulse to cheat has always existed. Mark Twain pointed to a profound truth when he wrote, Adam was but human. This explains it all. He didn't want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. The mistake was in not forbidding the serpent. Then he would have eaten the serpent. <laughs> Even the most brilliant, the most gifted, the most talented human beings are often brought low by their baser drives. Logic and sermons never convince. According to the Talmud, the bad inclination grows stronger from day to day. It is at first like the thread of a spider, but ultimately becomes like cart ropes. We need to struggle early against the inclination to cheat before the thread becomes like cart ropes, because by then, it will likely be too late. It is the first wrong steps in life that count. Avoid even the first step on the wrong path because the next step is more difficult to resist. Odysseus ordered his men to tie him to the mast as the ship passed the island of the Sirens. Even he, the commander of men, could not command himself to resist the temptation of the siren song. He knew that even one alluring note could lead to his downfall. Two, entitlement. Under our American system, we are all entitled to the same basic rights. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and all of the constitutional rights developed by American jurisprudence. None of us is inherently more entitled than anyone else. The same is true under our Jewish system. Each of us is created in God's image, and each is entitled to the same human dignity. It's not that we should each have the same, but for the good of the community, our opportunities should be as broad as possible. The playing field should be as level as possible. It's the genius of the American system. 
as well as the Jewish system. A key characteristic of Jewish life is that accomplishment is based on merit. Ever since the days of the destruction of the Second Temple, the expectation was that status would be earned. There were no longer priests, koanim, who received their commission by being born into a priestly family. Rabbinic leadership went to the best and to the brightest. And political leadership was no longer passed down from one king to his son, but rather was open to all who felt the urge to want to lead the people and were deemed by the people to be worthy. It's good to have financial resources. Judaism is not conflicted about money. Jews are not attracted to poverty. We do not take oaths of poverty. There is nothing inherently noble in poverty. A poor person is not necessarily honorable, and an honorable person is not necessarily poor. For the most part, Judaism considered poverty to be pointless suffering. We respect those who, through their own honest efforts, accumulated success and affluence. But, along with status, prestige, accomplishment, and wealth, there's a tendency to develop an exaggerated sense of entitlement. We think, I am successful, I am wealthy, I built this all by myself. I'm entitled to more because I'm capable of more. If they want what I have, they should be more like me. It's not really cheating. It's not really wrong if I take what I'm entitled to anyway. It's far better to be more humble about ourselves. How many of us truly understand that we could not be who we are without others who are what they are? Who builds the apartments we live in? There were no construction workers caught up in the college admission scandal. Who brings the heat to our door in winter? Who brings the water to our showers when we turn on the faucet? There were no plumbers caught up in the admission scandal. Who grows our food? There were no farmers caught up in the admission scandal. Well, actually, there was one. I don't know if you saw this a Napa Valley vintner. <laughs> but no avocado growers. I remember speaking with a class of our religious school students, and I asked them, where do avocados come from? They said, from Fairway. <laughs> How much of what we have and what we make and what we earn can be truly credited to us. 
Did anyone, any one of us awaken one morning and say to ourselves, I'll set sail for a new continent today and call it America. I will invent a new system of government and call it democracy and assign the principles of capital markets to this system. Come on. Practically everything we have was handed to us on a silver platter. Most of us are in this country in the first place because someone else in our family made a decision, wisely planned or just dumb luck, to leave their European homeland for the unknown. Were it not for that decision, we wouldn't be who we are. Who knows if we would even be alive? I'll never forget the meeting we had with a young, brilliant Afghani refugee in Lesbos during our synagogue's relief, refugee relief mission. He reminded us that the only difference between us is that he was born in Afghanistan and we were not. So what is the basis of this often arrogant mindset that I deserve what I have and the unfortunate are less worthy? Actually, the better approach is there but for the grace of God, go I. Three, parenting. All of us want the best education for ourselves and our children. I have not met one congregant who has said to me that they could care less how well their children do in school or university. We understand that education is one key to success and to happiness. Judaism always placed education, literacy, knowledge, logic, reason, study at the center of our endeavors. But what do we really want to teach our children? That we can purchase for them a degree that they could not earn by themselves? That we can buy them a place in an elite school it's almost the antithesis of the point of higher education. I know, because I'm a father in the 21st century, that educated and privileged parents today, we seek to solve all of the problems of our children. We are pained when they are pained. We suffer when they suffer. We so desperately want to spare them from the difficulties of life and the difficulties that we have endured. I would have been sorely tempted to do my daughter's math homework if by the time she reached high school, her math homework wasn't way beyond my intellectual capacities. <laughs> Let me ask you something. In your most reflective moments, what do you really want for your children? More money? More stuff? More recognition? More respect? More influence? More power? Fewer problems? Fewer challenges? Fewer frustrations? Really? 
Is this what you really want for yourself or for your children? Will these things truly make you happy? There's a multi-million dollar American industry of happiness. Learned specialists of biology, physiology, psychology, pharmacology, anthropology, sociology, cosmology, technology. They produce stacks of articles and books, often making a fortune in the process, urging us to acquire this or that elixir of happiness. It's good to have stuff. And who wants problems? But is it really the case that if you only had more stuff and less challenges, you would be at peace? That you would be happy? Judaism teaches that God placed us in a world of unending challenges. Over and over, our tradition tells us that for one reason or another, and for better or worse, God placed us in an imperfect world, a world that needs improvement, and that the human task is to improve the world. Over and over, our tradition teaches that for one reason or another, and for better or for worse, God created human beings imperfect, in constant need of improvement, and that our task is to improve ourselves. The way to improve is to contend. We get better through struggle. There is no success without failure. Judaism teaches that there is no such thing as a life without struggle. It's an illusion. Snake oil. They sell us delusional visions of happiness that are inconsistent with the very nature of the universe and our human personality. Our goal is to live in creative tension, our grasp constantly exceeding our reach. Movement, not rest, is the goal of life. Lack of movement is death. We even have a term for it, rest in peace. Motion is the cause of all life. And therefore, what we should really want to teach our children is not that they can achieve a challenge-free world, but that they can develop the strength to contend with challenge. What we should really want is not to empty challenge from their lives, but to challenge the emptiness of life. What we should really want to teach our children is not how to escape struggle, but to struggle with escapism. Ezehu Ashir, who is wealthy, asked the sage, Benzoma. Hasameach bechelko. 
One who is happy with what he has. One who is satisfied with herself. 